Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 6 for just a moment. We're going to take a detour. But we'll get started with the first two verses of Romans 6. I hope that you enjoy singing from our Scottish Psalter. Don't you look in the front of that and see a recent printing date and forget that from the 1500s there were Psalters in the English language and that one is the Psalter from 1655. There were a number of Scottish Psalters and that is the 1650 version. And I hope that when you sing those English words that are taken so similarly or that are written so similarly to our English words in our Psalms that you understand you're singing a heritage of English-speaking children of God for many hundreds of years. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for a way to sing common meter tunes to our Psalms. We would sing them word for word if you taught us Hebrew meter. But since we don't know that, we'll sing them this way. I hope you understand that you can open those little psalters and see inside the front cover many, many common meter tunes that English singing Christians know. And you can sing any one of the 150 psalms to any one of those common meter tunes because of the way the words and syllables have been arranged in that psalter. We love to sing the praise of the living God. We come to Romans chapter 6. And I'll read to you the first two verses. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? With all that was taught in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 19 especially, about the sovereign choice of God and the imputation of righteousness to His elect, and the imputation of Adam's transgression to all men, elect and non-elect, in the light of that glorious sovereignty of God that results in our salvation, and because the last two verses of Romans 5 declare God's grace to be overwhelmingly superior to Adam's sin and our sins in the light of Moses' law, we have Romans 6. And the question that is asked there, what shall we say then? If it is by the obedience of one that we're made righteous, then I guess our obedience isn't very important. If where sin abounded... Grace did much more abound than if some sin abounds in my life presently. I should assume, I could assume, that grace will much more abound even there as well. And so the question is asked, what shall we say then? Learning Romans 5 and the power of the doctrine of representation would result in some asking. And so the apostle heads off the question by asking it and answering it himself, which is a very effective form of teaching. 
What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Since we're made righteous by the obedience of one, and since wherever sin abounds, grace does much more abound, then we might as well not worry about whether we sin or not. God forbid! How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? How can we possibly continue in sin since we are dead to sin? And that is a practical death to sin because the... The issue that is raised in the next three verses is your baptism. And it's in your baptism where you practically buried your old man and your sinful self to rise to walk in newness of life. We who have chosen to follow Christ, we, His elect, whom He has saved and drawn to Himself, we have taken His name upon us in the waters of baptism. And when we did that, we buried the sinful way of living. We buried the world's lifestyle to rise to walk in a new lifestyle. So how can we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Our detour now begins. Turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. We have two issues that I believe at this juncture... Before we get into Romans 6, 7, and 8, which are the practical application of God's salvation, Romans 6 is about how we're going to live. Romans 7 is about the difficulty of that life. Romans 8 is further about how we're going to live and how we're bound up with sin, but we'll never be lost. Romans 9 through 11 deal with issues about elect and non-elect Israel. And chapters 12 through 16 of the chapter close out with specific commandments of how we ought to live. The first five chapters set forth the doctrine of our salvation. And it has sort of concluded for the moment. And I want to take that opportunity to remind us of a few things. And I hope that they'll be helpful to us. There's two issues. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? That's one of the issues. We want to answer that question outside of Romans 6, then we'll go back to Romans 6 and answer it in the verses that are there. And it's baptism that is raised first. The second issue is, I am angry, but I hope I don't preach in too much anger. And I'm not angry at you. I'm angry at the Arminian, which is now nearly universal, obsession with decisional salvation decisional regeneration. That it is a human decision that initiates regeneration. That it's a human decision that completes the salvation of a human soul. And I'm angry at that, and so we're going to depart for a little while here and work on this subject from another vantage point. And it's one I told you last Lord's Day, I was twitching to preach to you then. Romans 5 presented the sovereignty of God as powerfully as it could be presented. And we want to remember that. Our enemies accuse us. If your doctrine is true in Romans chapter 5, then we can live any way we want because if Jesus Christ has obeyed for us and if we're elected to heaven, then we're going to go to heaven anyway. And if God hasn't elected us and Jesus Christ didn't obey for us, then we're going to go to hell and we can't go to heaven. So what difference does it make? They prove by their words, as a general rule, that they're reprobates for even saying that. Romans 3, verses 7 and 8 tell us that. 
that the only person that thinks in such a twisted way by not recognizing the potter and the clay is worthy of the damnation that's coming on them. Paul would say in Romans 3.8, whose damnation is just for thinking such a ridiculous thought. You are such a pagan for even having such a thought because you want the salvation resting upon your little free will. Well, our salvation rests upon God's free will. Brethren, we do believe in decisional regeneration like we believe in decisional election. It's the decision of God. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Now there's free will. I will do what I want to do. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Romans 9.15 I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. None of us are worthy of it. None of us are objects of compassion. We are hateful rebel enemies of the God of heaven. There's four I wills in Romans 9.15, and not one of them is yours. Not one of them is Saul of Tarsus. It's the will of God. Romans 9.16 draws a conclusion from that four uses of I will in Romans 9.15, where the apostle would draw this conclusion. So then. Are you able to understand that the words so then are drawing a conclusion? So then. It is not of him that willeth nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. There is no willing on the part of the flesh or the will of man that results in anyone being born again. John 1.13 tells us that those that received power to become the sons of God were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. If a person is not born of God, they only have the will of the flesh or the will of man. And the world goes after them and tells them, Sinner, if you will exercise the will of your flesh, they have no other will. They're not born again yet. If you will exercise the will of your flesh, if you will exercise the will of man, you can be born again. But the will of the flesh and the will of man will never do anything that is required of them in the Word of God. It will not receive the things of the Spirit of God, 1 Corinthians 2.14. It cannot even hear them, John chapter 8, verses 43 and 47. It cannot see them, John chapter 3 and verse 3. The God of this world has blinded the minds of them. The mind can't comprehend it, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. If our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. The gospel can't help a lost man. The gospel can only help a found man. Found by the Lord Jesus Christ and regenerated. Oh, what a choice He made for us. Oh, I will. We believe in decisional regeneration. God's decision. You know what election is, don't you? Election is just another word for someone's choice. And in the Bible sense of election, since it's not the United States electorate picking new rulers it's God picking his children and it's called election because we were chosen in Christ before the world began his purpose and his grace was given to us in Christ before the world began that's God deciding for us and thank you Lord 
for deciding for us. Because if you hadn't decided for us, we would have decided against you. That's how horrible it is. Those who think that they want free will have no understanding of the depravity of man. They have no understanding of the wickedness of the human heart. It is not the inability of the human mind. It is not the inability of the human soul to make choices. It is the refusal of the depraved heart of man to ever choose God. He loves sin. He loves rebellion. He would rather have the smiling navel of Eve than the fellowship with God. And by the way, when I use my little analogy, I'm referring to the fact that Adam chose a woman over God. I hope you're able to understand that. It's happened a few times since. Lord, have mercy upon us. I am so sick of Charles Finney, D.L. Moody, Billy Graham, Jack Hiles, and Joanne Thompson. I'll limit myself to five names. These five people don't have a clue about salvation. Not a clue. Charles Finney was a Presbyterian lawyer in the state of New York. And while he may not have been the very first one, he was one of the first ones that popularized getting people to come down the aisle and sit on a mourner's bench where they could be regenerated by the exercise of their will. D.L. Moody took it to the next stage by preparing trained psychoanalysts that he called soul winners and prayer counselors that would meet with people when they came forward in a little side room to make sure they worked that decision out of them. Billy Graham decided to multiply the effect of D.L. Moody and have larger crusades where he would say, I want you to get up out of your seats now by the hundreds and come down to the front and receive Christ. Brethren, the issue of salvation is not us receiving Christ. The issue of salvation is God receiving us in Christ. When we stand before Him, you are not going to be wondering what you have done. You are going to be hoping in the mercy of God that your name is in the book of life. And if your name is in the book of life, it was written there before the world began. When God chose you in Christ Jesus. Remember from John 10 last week? And I give unto them eternal life. Who does he give eternal life to? My sheep. But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep. As I said unto you, my Father which gave them me. It's as simple as that. Billy Graham popularized it in numbers. Now Jack Hiles, a King James Bible thumping, fundamentalist Baptist pastor out of Hammond, Indiana, who has gone to meet the Lord and get corrected in the, in the seminary in the sky. We're being merciful to him. Has taught thousands of pastors over the last 40 years the false doctrine of Arminian salvation. Jack Hiles thinks that if Paul could have invented the internal combustion engine. He would have driven around the Roman Empire in a bus, offering suckers, candies, and amusement rides to get children from the ghettos on the bus to eke a decision out of them so that he could have reported much larger numbers. 
Jack is embarrassed by Peter's ineptness on the day of Pentecost. Jack was disgusted that they would settle for so few decisions for Jesus when the city was packed with hundreds of thousands of people. So in 1998, he wanted to prove to the Christian world and all his pastor buddies that he could get more saved in one Sunday than Peter could at Pentecost, full of the Holy Ghost. And he saved 15,000 souls that day. Wow! The angel had writer cramp in heaven. They were singing, there's a new name written down in glory. The angels had sore throats. Lozenges were being passed out. And the angels trying to get all those names in the book of life got a writer's cramp. You ought to read about the prosperity of First Baptist Church of Hammond, Indiana. The pastors that were taught by him thought that the most important thing for their churches were to have a fleet of buses. And let's go around and tell all the kiddies that we are going to have one wild Sunday school program for you. And we're going to hand out fish fillet sandwiches on the way home so that you can just be as happy as can be. Now, you, you just got to meet some of these people and understand what Jack Hiles has done to King James believing, preaching, fundamentalist churches across America. Now, many of you have never heard of Jack Hiles, and that's because you have lived in a very, very, very small segment of Christianity and of Baptists. I'm talking about numbers that dwarf the part of Baptists that you know about. And then there are many Baptists that are beyond Jack Hiles. I want to mention Jack Hiles because if you ever hear his name, and I want you to know that he took what Charles Finney invented, what D.L. Moody promoted, what Billy Graham popularized, he profaned. He profaned it by taking it to levels never thought of before. But he didn't do nearly as bad as Joanne Thompson did, who's in our own city here. And for those of you who can't remember what I'm talking about, I'm talking about I Walk the Streets of San Francisco. Nobody. But where does this come from? This comes from the theology of Jack Hiles. Where does Jack Hiles' theology come from? The theology of Billy Graham. Where does his? D.L. Moody. And his? Charles Finney. And his? The devil. Amen. They're called doctrines of devils. Paul would say, if any man preaches a gospel other than what I've preached unto you, even if it's an angel from heaven, or even if it's us, let him be accursed. The gospel that is recorded in the New Testament epistles is the only gospel that we care about. These names, for some of us who were raised in these circles, are almost precious names. And there is one of the dangers of the human heart. When you have heard a name repeated many times in glowing adulation, it is very hard for you to recognize and identify and name their sin and their error and their heresy. Now see, some of these names I've mentioned to you, you've never heard of. 
because you're ignorant of a great portion of church history. And I'm not criticizing you for that. I'm just saying that's a fact. You haven't missed very much. But if you've heard those names, it's hard. Now, everybody's heard of Billy Graham. Billy Graham's a nice guy. Who wouldn't want Billy Graham for your grandfather? I mean, really. He'd make a great grandpa. But listen, my dear brethren, and I have begged God to save me from any arrogance about this, but the Word of God has to be preached. And I don't care what names these men bear. It is the Lord, and He alone. Man has no glory of his own. These men can't even figure out the doctrine of baptism. Billy Graham and Charles Finney were Presbyterians. They can't figure out the doctrine of baptism and you want me to listen to them on the doctrine of salvation? Are you kidding me? Forget it. The Roman Catholics are closer to the truth than these men. The Roman Catholics at least require some good works. In some respects... Roman Catholicism, by its requirement of keeping the Ten Commandments, even though they're altered commandments, is better than this decisional garbage. These men can't even figure out that Christ's Mass ought not to be celebrated by Christians. Every one of their ancestors in the faith sure understood that. These men can't figure out Jack Hiles can't figure out that beer and wine are acceptable beverages for a Christian. That God made them and made them to be enjoyed and made them for a purpose of making merry the heart of man and causing them to forget the burdens of the day. Taught throughout the Bible. Drank repeatedly by the Lord Jesus Christ so that He was called a wine-bibber because He drank and John the Baptist wouldn't drink. But they can't figure that out. They can't read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and understand that the order is a great falling away the man of sin revealed, then Jesus comes. They teach, Jesus comes first, then the man of sin is revealed. Now, if they get their order messed up where Paul said, let no man deceive you by any means, how much do you think they get the order of salvation messed up? Are you with me on this? I am, I am enraged about it and about the ignorance of people in pews that listen to this stuff. Revelation 3.20 is going to go forth out of hundreds of pulpits today from Arminian and Calvinist mouths. I have sat personally and listened to Ian Paisley, the strongest Calvinist that Bob Jones University will allow in their pulpit, and they allow him there even though he still stands for the King James Bible because he draws more than anyone else they can put in their pulpit even though they sell his book defending the King James Bible beside books written by their Bible faculty condemning the King James Bible because they're hypocrites. But I've heard Ian Paisley himself use Revelation 3.20 to invite sinners to come to Christ. If a man is using Revelation 3.20 to invite sinners to come to Christ and to be saved and to know that their names are written in heaven, and that they're going to heaven when they die, that man doesn't understand the Bible. Revelation 3.20 is not written to sinners. It's written to saints. It was written to the church of Laodicea, who had lost their fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And the exhortation was for them to take Him into them 
and have that fellowship restored. It is a matter of fellowship, not a matter of relationship. It is not a matter of salvation. It's a matter of restoration. Lord, have mercy. What's wrong? It helps to remember that out of 2 billion Christians, or 2.2 billion, one-third of the earth's population, less than 5% understand the doctrine of baptism. You understand, you grasp, I repeat these statistics often because I want you to be able to fight the wiles of the devil by reminding the devil with the, with the shield of faith that in Noah's day there were eight. In Jesus' day there was 120. In our day the number is small, but it's consistent with the numbers that we read throughout scripture. God loved Israel and chose Israel because they were the fewest and smallest, fewest in number, and smallest of nations. The Arminian is over here in a ditch with Revelation 3.20. Oh, I've heard it so many times. All you've got to do is invite Jesus into your heart, and you can know that you're saved, and you're going to go to heaven. All you've got to do is invite Jesus into your heart. Don't you want to do that now? It'll only take a minute. I'm sorry to interrupt your fun and games. It'll just take a minute. Will you pray after me? Jesus, I'm a sinner. Will you come into my heart and save me? Amen. Go on your way, buddy. Now duplicate. Replicate. I've just saved you. Now you go save more. Let's fill the book of life. Let's replicate. Help me. Show me. You say, well, what about the Great Commission? If you can find me a living person in the world today that the Great Commission was written to, I'll kiss your feet. He better be able to raise the dead. And he better let me take him to find some poisonous snakes. Because he should be able to take up serpents. And I'm going to provide the poison, not him. I'll provide it. And we'll see if he can drink it. Because Mark 16 says that anyone that was responsible for preaching that commission would be able to take up serpents and drink deadly things and it wouldn't touch him. He'd be able to raise the dead, heal the sick, and speak in any language. I'll bet those of you that are wanting to take up my day or so that you can get your feet kissed can't even properly speak the English language, let alone Swahili. My dear brethren... Why am I angry? What shall we then say to these things? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. I said there were two issues. Number one, when we read something and we learn something as potent and powerful and plain as Romans 5, 19, for by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. And if we harp on that one like we did last Lord's Day, then there is that tendency to a fatalistic conclusion, but it doesn't matter how we live. I shall bury that heresy. Two, I am sick of Arminians and their decisional salvation, and I want you thoroughly, completely saved from that damning, deceitful lie. The Bible does not teach that. Did you hear Psalm 24 this morning? 
There is a character of the righteous that is the basis for their confidence and the basis for their evidence that they're going to have eternal life. This is New Testament religion. This is Old Testament religion. This is Bible Christianity. There is no decision on your part that initiates or completes eternal life. It is a decision on God's part. The Apostle Paul was only interested in finding those elect that God had chosen and decided should be saved and would be saved by the Lord Jesus Christ so that he might save them from ignorance to the understanding that Jesus Christ had saved them and they would not be further exerting themselves to save themselves. 2 Timothy 2.10 I endure all things for the elect's sakes. You can't find a verse in the pastoral epistles or the general epistles telling you to fulfill the Great Commission or anything even close to it. They went and preached the gospel in all nations because it's the first time that it went to anybody but a Jew. Do you understand the implications of that? Do you understand that for 1,500 years... No one got to hear the commandments of God and to learn about Jehovah except by going outside and looking at a sunrise and a sunset and stars. Do you understand that? You great, you want, you with great compassion for the souls of men. Have you ever read your Bible? In our prayer room this morning, we were reminded of Romans 15. Where Paul said, will you pray with me and for me that I'll be delivered from those in Judea that don't believe? Why wasn't he praying for their salvation? That's not very nice. Pray that I might be delivered from them. How many tracts did the Israelites pass out as they left Egypt? And how many did they get printed up and carry with them for the seven nations of Canaan? Just read your Bible and think. Reason in the Scriptures. Did the Israelite soldiers at the point of a sword say, Before I dispatch you, buddy, do you want to invite Jesus into your heart? He's the seed of the woman from Genesis 3.15. They just chopped their heads off and grabbed their babies by the ankles and dashed their brains out against the stones. And you know what the Bible says about men doing that? Happy shall he be. Now I'm saying things that may be hard for you to accept. But this is the Bible of God. You say, well that sounds so cruel. No! The cruelty is in Eden. And the cruelty is in your lives. And the cruelty is the lack, the lackluster, half-hearted way in which you sang this morning. That is the cruelty. God isn't cruel. God is, God is gentle. When you step outside right now, He is going to kiss you on the cheek even though you only sang with 30% of your heart. You are cruel. He is never cruel. He is always good. And He's pure and righteous and holy in all His ways. We are cruel. We are wicked. He is never wicked.
We're dealing with a very important matter. We're dealing with the matter of salvation. And I'm thankful that it's in the hands of God. The Arminians over here in one side, and it's going out of hundreds of pulpits right now or in a little while. As soon as it starts getting toward lunchtime, they're going to be oh, asking the organ to pipe up and getting that funeral dirge going to work on the emo. Why? Why are they going to use that funeral dirge? Amazing Grace sung at one-third its required pace. Or, just as I am, without one plea. Why are they going to have that organ start up? To work over the poor little audience that they need to make a decision for Jesus. Instead, they ought to be singing praise to the Lord the Almighty who lifted himself up and made a decision for them. Yes. Oh, Lord God, we want to present your Bible as honestly and as faithfully and as, as correctly as possible. We do not like standing alone. We wish there were thousands of other pulpits preaching the same thing. But we do not care because we love thy word and we believe thy word and we trust thy word. And they're over here with Revelation 3.20 that doesn't have a thing to do with salvation. When you, If you hear a man talking about Revelation 3.20 in the context of salvation, you better get him on some other subject because he doesn't know what he's talking about. So we run to a Calvinist. We get up out of that ditch. Oh, I'm sick of easy believism. I'm going to run over here to the other ditch. And we run across the road and we dive into that ditch. Oh, you Calvinists, I love you. I love you. You preach the sovereignty of God. What must I do to be saved? He that endureth to the end, the same shall be saved. Matthew 24, 13. All you've got to do is endure to the end and you'll be saved. You're kidding. I thought Jesus endured for me. No! It's perseverance of the saints, buddy boy. Don't you know that? It's one of John's five points. And we don't mean the Apostle John. We mean the Calvin John. You know, the ruler of Geneva that hated Baptists and and even burned one at the stake. That John. He told us that the fifth point is that you've got to persevere to the end, sinner. You want to be saved? Persevere, buddy. God will give you a little bit of encouragement, but it's up to you. Persevere. But I thought God would preserve me. No, it's persevere. You misspelled that word. Oh, he's in the Calvinist ditch. Matthew 24, 13. If you hear a man using Matthew 24, 13 in the context of salvation, find a new man or woman who understands the Bible. Matthew 24.13 is the same words as Matthew 10.22. And in both cases, it's for the saints and followers and disciples of Jesus Christ to endure to the end of the trials and tribulations going to be brought upon the Jewish nation because God would wipe out their enemies and they would be saved from the Jews. Nothing to do with salvation. Look where we stand. We look down and we see the yellow stripe. We look in one ditch, we hear Revelation 3.20. We look in the other ditch, we hear Matthew 24.13. We look in both ditches, they're baptizing babies. We look in both ditches, they're celebrating Christ's Mass of the Catholic Church. We look in both ditches, and they reverse the order that Paul said, Don't you dare reverse. We look in both ditches, and they're drinking milk. 
and tea. And here we are in the middle of the road. We pulled on our steeple. We won't celebrate Christmas. We only baptize those who love the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't believe that Matthew 24, 13 and Revelation 3, 20 have anything to do with salvation. And we believe it with a cold one in our hands. It gets scary. That's why I'm preaching this. It gets scary. You look over here, illustrious names. Billy, Charlie, Finney and Graham. We look over here. John, Jonathan. I mean Kelvin and Edwards. We look in both ditches. They would burn us for our doctrine of sonship. And here we are in the middle of the road. And we look down and we see the yellow line. And we say, Lord, are you with me? And he says, son, do you still remember Romans 9.15? I do, Father. (laughs) And 16, I do. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. We believe in decisional salvation. It's just His decision, not ours. Thank you, blessed God. It's because you may have grown up in this ditch that those names are revered to you, and I'm, I'm almost sacrilegious pronouncing judgment upon them for their heresies. Or you may have grown up esteeming these men because they were filled books that were on your shelves. But those men are no different than Benny Hinn or Jimmy Swaggart. So one went down the Arminian road, one went down the Calvinist road, one went down the Pentecostal charismatic road. What's the difference? We need to stick with Scripture. It is the Lord and He alone. Man has no glory of his own. My brethren, there is raging and has been for the last 20 years a heresy that I've told you about, a controversy that I've told you about before, but let me mention it again. These Arminians over here are getting irritated at these Calvinists, and these Calvinists are getting irritated at these Arminians, and some of the Arminians are getting irritated with each other, and some of the Calvinists are getting irritated with each other over this issue. They both believe the same thing. You go to heaven based on your decision. Both of them believe the very same thing. The strongest five-pointer will still demand a decision in order to go to heaven. Not God's decision, their decision. Here we stand alone. Hopefully on the crown of the road. The controversy, and I've told you about this before, but I need to repeat this. It's been six years and three months. Will you forgive me for the repetition? This is called the Lordship controversy. It's raging. John MacArthur lit the match by writing a book entitled The Gospel according to Jesus, in which he would make the horrible demand that when people invite Jesus into their heart, they should at least invite him into their heart as Lord. The Arminians went bananas. If you add inviting Jesus into your heart as Lord, you have added legalism to salvation, and those people aren't saved. The Calvinist fired back. If you don't own him as Lord when you invite him into your heart, then you're not saved. And so we've got two ditches 
that believe the same thing, telling each other that they're not saved, and it's called the Lordship Controversy. It's huge. Dozens of books have been written in the last 20 years on this subject. When a person invites Jesus into their heart, do they need to invite Him in as Lord? Or do they only need to invite Him in as Savior? Is this sentence still good enough? Dear Jesus, I'm a sinner. Will you save me? Thank you. Goodbye. Amen. Instead, dear Jesus, I'm a sinner. I make you the Lord of my life. I invite you in as my Savior. Goodbye. Thank you. Amen. The Lordship people say this person goes to heaven. This person doesn't. These people say that person doesn't go to heaven because that's legalism. Pure grace does not require the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Do you know how sick what I'm describing is? You, if, if, you, if you don't believe that it's a raging controversy, I'm not talking about liberal churches. You know, liberal churches are preaching this morning, even in the First Baptist churches of some town. they got a woman up there. She's, she could possibly be a lesbian, and they're preaching that creation isn't necessary to be a Christian. You can believe in divine evolution or some other man-made term. I'm talking about conservative churches are fighting over the lordship controversy, and they're all wrong. And here we stand. Lord God, I'm the least and the last that ought to be preaching your truth, but I believe your Bible. And I believe your Bible only, and I do not care who's over there, who's over there, or how many are over there, or how many are over there, or how few are here. It's what thus saith the Lord. And so we're at Romans, we're at Matthew chapter 7, and let's read what saith the Lord. And the Lord is the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 7 verse 21, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. How much more do you need to get established in your theology? Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord. Do you know why Jesus said that? Because he knew that these imposters were going to come along and take Romans 10.13 out of its context and promise eternal life to people for mouthing the word Lord. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Really? Jesus said that is not true. The Bible says God tempts no man. James chapter 1. Genesis 22 tells us God tempted Abraham. Which is true? Both are true. The Bible says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Jesus said, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall be saved. Which is true? Both. Rightly divided. They've never divided a verse in their lives. Do you know how many phases of salvation they have? A half. Do you know why it's a half? Because most people that he died for don't even get to heaven. Can't call that one phase. It's only a half a phase. And if they were to look at all the statistics in the world, they'd have to say it's, it's only a one percenter of a phase. Forget it. I'm just irritated. 
I believe Psalm 15. It lists all the character traits of the righteous and says if you do these things, you shall never fall. I'm just simple enough to believe that, and I believe it with all my heart. And I believe everything the Bible tells me about that He is the potter and I'm the clay. I believe it when it tells me that by the obedience of one I was made righteous. I just believe that. That it's not my obedience that initiates or activates or completes that righteousness. My obedience simply assures my heart and get, and allows me to start laying a foundation against the time to come according to 1 Timothy chapter 6 and I can make my calling and election sure. That's all it does. It's evidence. We are totally different. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Look at all these people calling upon the name of the Lord, and they're not getting saved. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. In pulpits there's going to be words like this. Sinner, do you want to be saved today? There is nothing that you can do. All you have to do is believe. You know, that's a contradiction in itself. But Jesus said, it's he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Do you want to be saved? Then do the will of your Father which is in heaven. It's the evidence of eternal life. It's not the condition. Anyone listening to this tape, or this MP, forgive me, tapes went away with the dinosaur. Anyone listening to this MP3 recording on our website? When I say salvation by works, I do not mean works as a condition, an instrument, or a means of eternal life. I mean good works as the evidence and the proof of eternal life. And that's what the Bible teaches. And that's what Jesus is teaching here. No one earns their way to heaven by the merits of their works. It's the character of men that is the evidence of eternal life. It is not that they wrote a date in the flyleaf of the Bible of when they invited Jesus into their heart by Revelation 3.20 and had some minister or prayer warrior sign it off. I have a signature greater than that for you. It's the signature of the Lord of glory with seven seals on the book that God Almighty had in His hands. And only the Lord Jesus could open that book. Saul of Tarsus never got one name in the book of life. Never, ever. And nor did he think that he was doing so. He endured all things for the elect's sake. Their salvation was according to the will of him that worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. According to the good pleasure of his will. Ephesians chapter 1. You young people that are memorizing Ephesians 1. You know every time yesterday that I heard Ephesians 1 come up. Oh, you better know Ephesians 1. And for the second assembly, you're going to need 6. And a verse in 4. Salvation by works. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Why don't they preach that? The words of Jesus. Is it in the red in your Bible? Why haven't I seen this verse in the end zone of a football stadium? Why do I hear the words, there's nothing you can do? Oh, there's everything you should do. Right. One more before we close. Second Peter chapter 1. I've been here so many times, you should be able to quote it to me backwards. Second Peter chapter 1. 
Now we are right in the middle of the two Peters. Second Peter chapter one. We're boom in the middle of the two Peters. Do you know that you have to read Peter before you get to Revelation? Why would they go to Revelation 3.20 and tell people that all you need to do to be saved is to invite Jesus into your heart when in order to get to Revelation 3.20 you had to read this? This is what I want you fully clarified on. I want you comforted on this. We believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We love Him. We confess Him with our mouths. We believe in our hearts that God raised Him from the dead because God put that faith in our hearts that the gospel calls forth. Paul never went after anyone else. Don't worry. Romans 10 will be fun when we get there because Paul said the word of faith which we preach is already in your heart and in your mouth. That's why he wanted to preach the gospel from faith to faith and to call that faith into activity. Because as soon as it's called into activity, then you know that keeping the law of Moses for your righteousness is no more. What a deliverance. If you had to go whack the throat of a baby every... I mean, i got babies on my mind. If you had to go whack the throat of a lamb every year and kill oxen in order to make peace for your soul and to be ceremonially cleansed in the Jewish scheme of things, do you know what kind of a relief it would be to know that Jesus paid it all? And to sing with the Apostle Paul, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. No more to Moses. No more to the Levites. All to Jesus. Second Peter chapter 1. Where does faith come from? In second, Where does the Bible tell us faith comes from? We obtain it. Where, where are we taught that? In the first verse of this chapter. Second Peter 1.1. 1, 1. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained, have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. God gives faith. Do you know what James chapter 2 and verse 5 would say? God hath chosen the poor of this world rich in faith. God made the choice. So even faith is God's decision that you would have any. Verse 5, beside this, giving all diligence. Now, how much diligence should we give to this? My, will you give me, well, I know I'm late. Will you give me a couple of minutes? Why are there not pulpits giving any diligence to this passage? None. I have never in my life, and I have heard more Baptist preaching than anyone in here. Never have I heard this passage preached when it says, give all diligence to it. Yes, they may have preached through the epistles of Peter at some time and touched on these verses. But if you want an invitational text because you think a church needs an invitation, then use this text. It says, give all diligence. There's no diligence required in Revelation 3.20. It's right here. Giving all diligence. This is important. This is where the effort ought to be applied. What does diligence mean to you? It means hard work. It means repetitive hard work. He's going to use the word diligence again in verse 10 in the same context that I'm about to read to you. This is of great importance. Do you want to know if you're saved? Do you want to live like a saved person? Do you want to show the grace of God in your life? 
The Bible tells you how. In answer to all of those questions. The Bible tells you how. And it's not in Revelation 3.20. And it's not in Matthew 24.13. And it's not in Romans 10.13. It is in Matthew 7.21. God gives us the faith. We obtain it because it's given to us. Because God chooses us rich in faith. James 2.5. Verse 5. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. Virtue is goodness. Godliness. But we have godliness coming up. It's, it's being good and strong in being good. It's the virtuous woman applied to men and women. Goodness. And to virtue, knowledge. And to knowledge, temperance, which is the discipline, the self-discipline, the moderation of your appetites. And to temperance, patience. Cheerful enduring of negative events. And to patience, godliness. Acting like God and pleasing Him as the children of God. And to godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, charity. There are eight things. God gives us faith. He then tells us to add to that faith seven other things. For Verse 8, for if these things be in you, these eight things, if they're in you, and abound... You have lots of them. They make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no little decision that God wants you to make. That's The world has made that up to make heaven as easy as possible so that they can lie to people and tell the wicked that they're going to heaven and discourage the hearts of the righteous by making salvation outside the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ezekiel 13.22 tells us that these false teachers make the heart of the righteous sad because their doctrine is so pitiful. It presents a weaking, begging, losing Jesus. And we present the King of glory. And they make the hearts of the, the wicked strong to continue in their wickedness because they promise them life. That's what it says in Ezekiel 13.22 about false teachers. I want to put the wicked in hell and I want to give the righteous the king of glory. Psalm 24. Yes. Do you know where it puts it puts the wicked in hell because they don't match up with verse 4, do they? And it gives the righteous someone to be excited about. The righteous who have clean hands and a pure heart and who haven't lifted up their soul to vanity and haven't sworn deceitfully, they know the king of glory. He's the Lord of hosts. They'll never preach a text like this. These things be in you and abound. They make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. You'd say, see, Jesus died for the sins of all men. Wrong. You're forgetting that you're reading Second Peter. Second Peter means, because it's called second, that it's number two after number one, which is called First Peter. First Peter, chapter one and verse two says that it was written to those that were elect. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit and obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. The elect are being addressed. If elect, do not give all diligence. If they're elect. 
and they do not give all diligence to abound in these things, then they have forgotten what God has done for them and through Jesus Christ their Lord. And that is a foolish travesty, and that is a heinous crime. Verse 10, wherefore the rather, let's not be like those people in verse 9 at all. Let's not be like elect in verse 9. Let's be like elect in verse 8. That these things are in us and they're abounding in us. And that we're not barren or unfruitful, but that we're abounding in fruit. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence. Again, the word diligence. Why don't they preach this diligently? Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. That is an invitational text. That is to tell you, how can I know that I'm saved? I want to be saved. I love the Lord Jesus Christ. I fear God. I hate my sins. I don't want to be under the wrath of God. What should I do? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and add to your faith virtue and to your virtue knowledge and all the way and fulfill this passage right here. This is how you make your calling and election sure. This is how you abound in the fruit of the knowledge of Christ Jesus your Lord. Don't tell me, I know Jesus. I met Jesus when I was five years old. I was led to Jesus at my mama's knee. Don't tell me about your knowledge of Jesus. This is the fruit of the knowledge of Jesus. Give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. Why didn't Peter just say, all you got to do is believe? There ain't nothing you can do, sinner. All you got to do is believe. Verse 11, For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The easy believism junk over here in this ditch, the endure to the end junk over here in this ditch, both of them believing in various degrees of decisional regeneration that you've got to make a decision in order to be saved. God's made the decision to save His people, His sheep, from their sins. God gave them to Christ. Christ gives them eternal life. That's all the giving there is in salvation. And then He gives that eternal life to us. How do we know that we have that eternal life? Right here. We add to our faith these seven things so that we end up with eight things and we abound in these things and we give diligence to them. In fact, we give all diligence to them. Verse 5. And an entrance is going to be ministered unto you abundantly. The angels are going to be waiting for you when you get near heaven. They're going to swing open the gates because you are a child of God and the evidence is stamped all over you. And that is the evidence. See, Second Peter chapter 1 agrees perfectly with Psalm 24. Second Peter chapter 1 agrees perfectly with Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. I hope and I exhort you to love the King of glory. He is the Lord of hosts. He is the Lord Jesus Christ.